The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Car design, by its very nature, carries its own culture, and with its results, helps form culture. It's the sharp lines on the back of a vehicle or the smooth shape of a curve on a door panel that help define a brand, a model, or a movement. Or maybe it's a utilitarian design that sparks the movement and a whole new way of imagining transportation. For Bob Boniface, it's been all of that and more. Boniface. In many ways, his very name sounds like it belongs on a designer's office door. What's been created behind the door has been revolutionary, industry-changing, and remarkable. You could start with his imprint on the famous stow-and-go seating feature of the Chrysler minivan. What minivan owner has not praised Bob's work without ever knowing it was him? Or there's his work on Daimler Chrysler's advanced product design studio, where he was the chief designer and helped create the iconic 300C, Jeep Liberty, and Dodge Intrepid vehicles, progressive cars for their time. After a switch to General Motors, Bob went on to create the Chevrolet Volt and then a series of Cadillac's iconic CTS, ATS, and XT5 vehicles. Now, as the head of design for Buick, he's trying to revitalize an iconic American brand that's looking for a new identity in the luxury space, highlighted most recently by the 2022 Buick Wildcat EV concept. One of eight children from Youngstown, Ohio, he started drawing cars at age four. A lifetime later, he has a level of context that is unparalleled. Today, we talk about Buick design, its new ethos, and general questions about the role design plays in vehicle ownership. And what's more, we explore his own collection and the Cars in My Yard yearly gathering at his own home. A true American who is leaving his mark on car design with every stroke of his design pen, Chrysler and GM culture, and what's to come in the auto industry. Bob Boniface, today on Sirius XM. Hi, this is Bob Boniface, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. We've had a lot of designers on the program uh, throughout the course of 80 plus episodes, but we've never had a designer on the program who started drawing cars at the age of four. <laughs> now, I guess when you're one of eight, Bob, uh, you got to have something to do. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> How am I? I'm doing great. <laughs> Let's talk about your, your path, but I, I want to start, I guess, with what you're most focused on now. And the yep. designers are always, um, whether, whether we've talked to, um, uh, Ed Welburn, who I know, you know, well on this program yep. or Ralph Scheel, uh, or just, a just a host of others, they are always forever working on a project that sometimes isn't even related to the car industry, but they're always sketching something. Yep. Is that your mode? Yeah. I think that's an affliction that, uh, all <laughs> designers have. You know, I, I think, you know, and, and from a young age, I think we're all cut from the same cloth. We always, everything we see in the world, we think of a way to make it better. Even before we knew that's what we were doing, you know, we'd look at, uh, I used to sketch my parents' house. My father had a barn. I would draw that. I would, I would draw his cars. And, you know, you, you referenced that I drew cars from age four. I used to open his uh, owner's manuals and draw what I saw gas tanks, instrument panels, wheels, things like that. But I think all designers are the same way. They're very um, inquisitive about the world around them. 
and uh, physical objects are, are fascinating to most designers. So you drew the gas tanks that were in yeah. the manuals. Did you always know that you wanted to draw cars? I did, yeah. I, um, but it was always just a hobby, really. Uh, and what's funny is, you know, my father was, uh, was a doctor. And so he didn't really, and he was a car collector as well, but he didn't know, know anything about the field of automotive design. And I would sit in my room and I would sketch cars. And I remember one time he came up to me, he said, you should keep doing that. That might come in handy someday. <laughs> mm. I don't know what he expected the outcome would be, but uh, I guess he was right. <laughs> Indeed. And in fact, you were you were in a psychology economics major. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I graduated from Vanderbilt in 1987 with a degree in psychology and econ. Yeah, so I drifted pretty far away from uh, uh, a future in automotive design. Yeah, so what pulled you toward that? Yeah, so I've talked about this before. You know, um, I was after I graduated from Vanderbilt, I moved to Boston. And I was working for a mutual fund and I was doing um, uh, accounting. It was called uh, fund accounting. Essentially, we would, the subscriptions to the fund would come in, all the checks would come in, and we would do ledger entries. And then at the end of every day, we would provide a balance to the uh, fund manager who would make investments on the following day. Kind of dull work, um, but it certainly you know, doesn't sound like car design. <laughs> no, no, it 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 doesn't. It didn't. Um, but what's funny is that you know it was my first real job, and one of the first things I did was I went out and bought, believe it or not, a drafting table and a proper uh, architect's chair, and I just sketched cars uh, just for fun. And I used to draw them for people at work. They would give me a photograph of their favorite car. I would draw it for them. They would get them framed and all. And people always said to me the same thing. What are you doing here? Why don't you do something else? Hmm. And my sister, Carla, God bless her. And she's, um, she's in finance. She never thought that uh, of working for a financial institution was a, a path for me. And so she had come across an article about um, Art Center College of Design and College for Creative Studies in, in a magazine. And she sent it to me and she said, this is what you should do. And I said, yeah, whatever, I have a job. So without telling me, she contacted the schools and had them send me um, uh, admissions forms, basically. No kidding. And, uh, yeah. And so I said, well, I took a look at it and I put together a portfolio of original work and I sent them off and College for Creative Studies accepted me. And so that was a, a pretty earth shattering moment because I, I really only did it so that I wouldn't look back and have any regrets. You know, I said, okay, I'll give it a try. But once they accepted me, um, you know, I had to switch cities. I had to go back to school. I had to leave my future wife back in Boston. Um, she, <laughs> she stuck with me though. She's, she's out here in Michigan, uh, but it was great. Yeah. So I owe a lot to my sister for that because had she not done that, um, you know, I would have missed it. Well, you're sure. doing you're doing mutual funds. You're doing accounting. You're, yeah. you're you've got nothing to do with the Detroit Three. Nope. I, I'm guessing you probably hadn't really made many trips to Michigan at that point in your life. Zero. I had never been to Michigan, and I grew up in Ohio, and I had never been to Michigan. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, you know, we've had Erin Crosley on this program, and she had a, actually a somewhat similar path, and that she never expected yeah. to end up at General Motors. Yeah, yeah, I know Aaron very well. We worked together in Cadillac when I was there. Of course. But, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, when I moved to Detroit, I didn't know anyone in the industry. I didn't know how the industry worked. I didn't know how automotive design worked. I just threw myself in head first and had to figure it out. And it was tough. Um, 
my first semester at CCS, I got put on uh, on academic probation, not for a low GPA. I had a 3.9, but they just didn't think my work was up to snuff. And so I had one semester, the spring semester, to not only get off probation, but to be accepted into the elite group of transportation design students, because you get accepted into the trans program after your first year. So 75 students started out, they only took 11. And so I had a real uphill battle, but I made it into the program and uh, yeah, it took off from there. What did you think? I mean, you're sitting in Detroit, you're going to the College of Creative Studies, you're, uh, you're surrounded by these I'm guessing super ambitious, very talented, very automotive focused people. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's Bob has just kind of landed in this role, right? Yeah. Well, it was really intimidating because in addition to all the headwinds I was facing, I had never had a formal art um, education. I never took a drawing class. I was, I drew pretty well. I mean, I did it. It was so all of the other students that I was competing against all had some measure of um, art background. And I just was committed to saying, you know what? I like cars more than anyone on earth. And I think I can be better than all of you uh, in my head. You know, I thought levels basically, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I, I burned the mid- midnight oil. I mean, I, I busted my tail and, um, I, uh, you know, it was tough, but you know, the, the folks, the folks that I graduated with, I've, I'm friends with all of them, you know, uh, a bunch of us went to Chrysler together. It was a small, small group of people. And, um, it's, it's an, it was a nice community of students, you know, it was competitive, but it was friendly competition. Well, not too long afterwards, you end up at, in fact, Daimler Chrysler and their yes. advanced product design studio, chief designer. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you're doing things, you're overseeing things like minivan stow-and-go. I yeah. mean, if there, if there is not a larger <laughs> cultural car influence than stow-and-go, there are a lot of moms and dads out there who thank you today. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, on, on the surface of it, you wouldn't think that that was um, a design initiative. You would think it was more of a, of a uh, engineering right? product planning or, init or a uh, engineering initiative. Uh, but in addition to doing all the size and proportion work when you're in a, an advanced studio and trying to come up with the character for the brand, you also work hand in hand with engineering on anything that affects the architecture of the vehicle. So the stow and go was an idea that just came out of our studio. In fact, it came out in the what they called the RS minivan. It was basically a mid-cycle enhancement of an existing van. They put that seat set into it. But this, the idea for Stone Go was really not supposed to come out until the 08 body refresh, which we were doing in our studio. So we were creating the new body and this new feature that we came up with in our studio. Dieter Zetcher at the time, who was the CEO, liked the idea so much that he had engineering retrofitted into the existing vehicle. Hmm. So, uh, but it was tough, you know, working with seating suppliers. That was a really complicated uh tear up to the underbody of the vehicle, um, getting the seating position correct, um, you know, ensuring that all the materials and so forth looked and felt the way they should. Yeah, that was, that was a big one. It wasn't a glamorous one, but it was an important one. It's an important one. Exactly right. Yeah. And in fact, you end up involved in the rear wheel drive 300C, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, many many folks would know um, the influence of that by looking at Eminem and and his <laughs> his whole impact on all of a sudden made Chrysler incredibly cool. The Jeep Liberty, the Dodge Intrepid, the uh, Dodge Intrepid hybrid concept car. And then you go over to General Motors and you're working on vehicles like the Chevy Volt or the Cadillac CTS, ATS, CTSV. Yeah. Bob, the accountant, is knee deep in car design <laughs> at that stage, right? <laughs> knee deep for sure. Yeah. The, uh, but, you know, the accounting part of me actually, uh, it helps, you know, because designers, we also have to manage cost, capital, budgets. Um, so having a sense sensitivity to the idea that, corporation exists to create shareholder value and and to create products that people can afford and find valuable so that comes out once in a while but yeah we i've worked on a, a variety of things and every one of those has a fun story behind it oh i bet it does yeah any that come to mind yeah well you mentioned the, the chrysler 300 before we get into the gm stuff if, if you want to go that far you know the chrysler 300 um was that and the Dodge Magnum were going to be replacements for the outgoing LH cars, which were north-south um, oriented front wheel drive cars. In other words, the motor went fore aft in the vehicle and they had long front overhangs. Tom Gale, who was head of product development at the time, Tom's the one who hired me, he wanted to do a shorter front overhang vehicle. So that would have necessitated a new transmission, something like Acura was doing with the old legend where they pushed the wheel forward in the car, but it was still a front wheel drive car. Um, but with our um, new relationship with Daimler-Benz, we were able to use some of the outgoing underbody and suspension components and transmission and so forth from the outgoing E-Class to get us the proportion we wanted and then design our own body around it. So it was fun to be a part of that too. Amazing. Let's talk about your GM uh, journey. And we'll start with the Chevy Volt, which when we think now, uh, looking at uh, where we are in the in the EV craze yeah. and what's to come, what is coming, 100 some odd vehicles over the course of the next 12 months that are electric vehicles. The Volt, I remember, along with the Nissan Leaf, was a bit of a moonshot, as it was described yeah. at the time. Would you see yeah. it the same way? It absolutely was, especially when you consider where the industry and where GM in particular was at the time. Uh, this was all right on the verge of, of um, GM's bankruptcy. So uh, we had a credibility problem at the time as well. A lot of people didn't think we were going to do that car. A lot of people didn't think that, that G, you know, there was critiques out there that said GM doesn't, GM's in this position because they don't build vehicles that are relevant to the, to the, consumer base but that's not true of course but it was a moonshot um i was there when bob lutz and john lochner were talking about uh you know they got the idea from when they did the ev1 long before i got there the ev1 they they to extend the range during testing they would tow i guess this i don't know if this is an old wives tale they would tow a gas powered generator to keep the battery charged so the and it's a series hybrid, you know, it's trains have there have been trains that have run in series hybrids. But when Bob Lutz said, we'll take the Delta architecture, which was the Cobalt and Chevy Cruze, that sort of thing, and uh in we'll put the gas motor as a generator in the same position, and then we'll put uh put wheel electric wheel motors. This was the concept um on the vehicle. But then they were able to compact package it all 
into the same physical dimensions as a transmission and an internal combustion engine. And um, we made it work. And, you know, it was, a, they took six months out of the development time for that vehicle. In six months, when you think that a normal product cycle is about 42 months, you take Rapid. six months up. That's really quick. Yeah. 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 Amazing. You were also part of the, the top secret Camaro project. Yeah, that one's got, um, I, I told someone recently, that was the best and the worst thing I ever worked on. Not worst because of how it looked, just because of the experience. It was, um, <laughs> well, you know, and I, I think uh, people have heard this story before. When when I was still at Chrysler, and I, 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 the interview process to go to GM took about eight months on and off. And I had met with Ed Welburn a couple of times, and we were both big Camaro fans. I My first car was a 75 Camaro. Ed had his yellow 69 SS. And whenever we met, we just talked about Camaros. So when I got the offer from GM, I remember I was already sketching first-gen inspired Camaros at Chrysler before I left, just in my on my uh, lap or on my uh, post-it notes. So when I moved to GM, I had a conversation with Ed. We were over in the UK studio visiting Simon Cox, and then you know, I had been there a couple of months. And he said, well, you know, how's it going? I said, it's going great so far. And he says, anything you want to work on? You know, I was in the advanced studio. I was running the advanced studio. So all the fresh ideas are supposed to come from that studio. I said, I want to want to do a Camaro. And Ed said, the words he said were, don't start with me. <laughs> but then he explained, you know, because we had, we, GM had killed the previous generation Camaro. Um, it was built in Canada and there was an agreement with the Canadian auto workers that coupes were not going to be part of GM's long range plan. And therefore there's no place for this vehicle and they shuttered the plant. So Ed was explaining to me that there was a lot of baggage around that and that Camaro was a tough thing to, to work on. But then he said something I'll never forget. He said, I'm not telling you to not work on it, but if you do just keep it a secret, don't tell anyone about it. So got back to the studio and Brian Smith, who oversees our California studio now, he and I started working on a scale model built off of the Zeta architecture, which was the old Pontiac GTO. Uh, we made a scale model of it. Uh, Mike Abelson, who used to oversee um, advanced engineering, came over to look at it. He said the dimensions looked like it worked. We got an audience with Bob Lutz. Bob said, let's make it a concept and let's make it a pre-production car. So all that sounds great. Here's the bad part. Um, right as we were supposed to send the concept vehicle to our shops to build it, you know, it's about a six-month build, Ed said he was unhappy with the way we were executing the front end and a few other things. And he brought Tom Peters in to do a competing theme with ours. And they look pretty similar. And he gave the project to Tom, including the production program. So that was like a gut punch to me. Um, it was it was really tough, you know, uh, but what came out of it was the vault. The vault was the very next project I worked on. So, you know, life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Wonderful. Buick today and your yeah. current role. What does Buick stand for? Well, Buick, you know, if you think about Buick's, the trajectory of its hundred plus years, um, it has always in its heyday in particular stood for advanced technology, a lot of technical first, progressive styling. Um, Harley Earl used it as his, he did his most expressive work with the brand. If you think about the Y job, the world's first concept car is the Y job. Um, the Wildcats, one, two, three, 
and Wildcat 4 in 1984. So Buick has a history and a tradition of engineering and marketing first and design leadership. Um, but these days, you know, we talk about Buick has brand pillars, one of which we say is sculptural beauty. The cars have to look good. Um, they're not comprised of an inordinate amount of lines. It's more about surface quality and reflections. We talk about spirited, efficient performance, uh, sense of well-being. Buicks are quiet, smooth, um, nice driving cars. What we want to do now as we move into the EV future, and this is what you see with the Wildcat concept, is we're taking the design language to where it would have been in Buick's natural tra trajectory from its heyday. Expressive, bold proportions, uh, a down-the-road graphic to the front end that you can't mistake for anything else. Um, signature lighting details and things like that. Uh, so that's where we're trying to take it. It's not going to be a middle-of-the-road design language. Um, it's going to be in its own space. Does that excite you given your history? The fact that you're going to be now in a situation where uh, with an EV platform, with, with an EV propulsion system and different platforms that you yeah. can do so much more. Yeah, you can. Um, a lot of people think that uh, with the transition from internal combustion to EVs that um, the passion will be gone. It's quite the opposite, really. Uh, the packaging of the EV componentry, whether it's the battery or the propulsion units, the battery under the floor, the propulsion units don't stick up as high above the hood, so you can get faster hood lines, you can get flat floors. Um, the, the language of the front end, you don't need as large of a grill. Um, the aerodynamic devices are front and center now in a lot of cases. So all of these are uh, frontiers of design that we're exploring now. And they're really going to change the language of the cars um, in a lot of ways for the better. So as an extension to that question, EVs must excite you like hell. Design excites me, really. Right. Um, yeah. No one wants to keep designing the same thing over and over again. And um, I love gasoline too don't get me wrong oh, <laughs> i know another, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that that's another part of my life but no it, like we mentioned about um you talked about when you interviewed ed, ed and ralph and and then me design drawing since i was four the idea that you can do something new and improve upon something that's what motivates us and so that's why i'm so excited about the design um uh of the of evs you know the the just the things that were open to us now that weren't open to us before. So what is the newest Buick design ethos? Well, I mentioned the sculptural beauty, but it's that's sort of um, easy to say. Uh, when we did the Wildcat EV concept, I mean, that is the embodiment of our, of our ethos, at least the, the visual receipt of our ethos. Uh, vehicles that sit on their wheels very well. Um, planted stance, um, the low mouth, the forward-leaning front end of the car, uh, the new badge. Um, but I mentioned the sculptural surfacing. I see so many brands today that are filling the body sides with line work and creases. Um, we have more of an economy of line in our vehicles. This, the surfacing does the talking, and that's a little bit harder to do because it's more about the proportion and the massing of the vehicle. Um, but it's a, it's a place where we can stand alone, certainly under the GM, GM umbrella, because Buick's 
don't look like, or won't look like anything else in our portfolio. And I would imagine that the goal here is to combine uh, a lot of what you're talking about in the, in that in that new design look and feel, but also relevance to those who are, quite frankly, under sixty. Yeah, and and that's been an uphill battle for for the brand. Um, I'm not going to deny that, but you know we're seeing uh, the fruits of our labors. Last year alone, um, the average age of the Buick buyer dropped by two years in one model year, um, and we're seeing a increasingly educated, more tech savvy buyer. Um, high appeal to female buyers. Buick has a very, very uh, large number of female buyers, and um, I think that's all of those demographics. I think are well positioned for. EV buyers, because I think EV buyers trend toward the same higher education, more tech savvy, um, high high proportion of female buyers. So I think Buick's well positioned and we're at an inflection point in the industry where um, everyone is launching their newest stuff right now. And I don't think brand is going to be a brand's, uh, unless your brand's history won't be relevant, but um, everyone gets a clean slate because this is a, a watershed moment where the, where the powertrains are changing and the way you use your vehicle is changing. So uh, clean slate here. You say that you dropped two years in one model year. Where are we now? Where, where is Buick? What's, what's this demographic? Yeah, the average Buick buyer now is in their mid-50s. Yeah. Where can it be? Well, at some point, there's a floor there because uh, the lines between uh, income and, and, uh, and age cross at some point. Um, so I, I don't know where it would be. Now, if you're talking about the customer in China, where we are a huge player, it's a different story altogether. The average age there is something like 36, but that's the demographic that has all the money in China. So it's a bit different um, over there than it is here. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Bob Boniface, Buick's Global Head of Design. And to see my interview with Bob, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. You can like and subscribe to see more than 90 interviews. Sirius XM Business Radio. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Bob Boniface, Buick's Global Head of Design. And to see my interview with Bob, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. You can like and subscribe to see some 90 interviews. Let's talk design in general. What do you see as the role design plays in vehicle ownership? Everything that a person sees or touches in the vehicle they buy or drive Design is involved in that. And, you know, all vehicles today, if you're talking about internal combustion vehicle, they all get great fuel economy. They all have um, reliability, great reliability numbers. EV vehicles all have our parity at range. So design is the big differentiator. Um, the opinion people have about a brand or a particular model is first and foremost, the first thing they see is how the vehicle looks. And when they sit in it, 
What is the seating position like? What are the materials like? What is the user interface like? How thoughtful are all of these pieces integrated? So design is the first touch point for any automaker, uh, first touch point for the buyer. And so uh, to me, that's design's the one of the most important uh, elements in product development. We had Frank Stevenson on this program, legendary yep. designer, BMW, yep. and Mini. And yep. I asked him what he thought. Now, he, he's no longer designing. He's retired. Right. So he, <laughs> he could... He could probably um, the filter can come off to some extent, right? But but I did yeah. ask him the question: What do you think of today's design in general? Not a specific brand, but in general. And mm-hmm. Frank told our listeners that he thought it was completely confusing. That yeah. it's too many car companies are trying to do too many things on vehicles, uh, yeah. shapes that bend and cross, and mm-hmm. <laughs> of layers of of different yeah. um, pivot points on exteriors. What do you think? I, I agree with them 100%. Like when I talked to you earlier about what Buick's design language or design ethos is, it's more of an economy of elements on the exterior of the vehicle. It's more about beauty and the shapes. Um, it's almost like Henry Ford used to say, "Don't tell me, if you want to make me happy, tell me what you can take off my car and not what you can put on it. <laughs> so the, the designs that I'm most drawn to are more about proportion, surface quality, light reflection on the surface, and not creases and add-ons and and things like that i mean let's take a 911 and a 992 comes out and it doesn't look that much different from a 997 which would be 15 years prior yeah yeah and um obviously porsche does that best you know the 911 was introduced in 1963 right and that general form has continued on of course now it's it's double the mass and probably one-third the size the external dimensions but there's that, when you talk about the trajectory of a, of a design language, of the trajectory of a brand, Porsche wrote the book on that. Um, and they get by with simplicity. The small, there's a consistency to their design language. And um, I respect that. And that's what we're striving for. We're not trying to make our cars look like Porsche, of course. But we're trying to, at Buick anyway, strive for that consistent language so that the car looks good today. It will look good 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, if there's one dig against American, um, automotive automakers is we have a short attention span with respect to design. We always want to move on to the next thing. Consistency is hard and consistency is easier. I should say for a brand like Porsche who have this, you know, brand equity, incredible brand equity. They don't have to change their customer base. Doesn't want them to change, but, um, it's tougher when you're selling, hundreds of thousands or millions of units, um, you are always looking for the next next thing uh, that's going to excite people, get them out of their old car and into a new one. But like I said, as a language, I respect consistency and simplicity, um, not austerity, but simplicity, S- simple forms that are arranged artfully on the body rather than extra character lines or extra appliques and things like that. So I agree with Frank 100%. And I would even say this, um, in the 50s and 60s, when Buick and Cadillac and Chevrolet were very identifiable, identifiable mm-hmm. as cars that were coming toward you on the road or, or, or parked, very yeah. identifiable. That's a Buick. That's a Cadillac. Yeah. I think it's hard today. You it can is. be behind a SUV of one brand and 
take the badge off it and it just looks like another brand. Well, yeah. And I see that. And there are a lot of reasons for that, which are not, not necessarily defensible. If you take the front end of a car, you know, with impact requirements, um, we have bumper beams, every manufacturer front and rear, they're hundred mils tall and they're 16 to 20 inches off the ground there. I'm doing millimeters and inches. I apologize. Um, so you have a, a large, bilingual here. Yeah. Large bumper beams, increasingly stringent impact requirements, corner hit, offset barrier hits. And on top of that, the landscape of sensors on the front of the vehicle, whether it's park sensors, whether it's short range, long range, active cruise control, those take, and then you have to apply, uh, provide cooling space around that area. Um, there on the rear of the vehicle, we get over lift over heights and do we put a four way sheet of plywood in the back? So by the time you tick off all of the, the landscape of those boxes, you only have a small amount of area to design. Um, That's a some very of that fair is, point. yeah, some of those are choices. Those are choices. And, uh, we can be too beholden to criteria sometime. Um, but yeah, that's one of the reasons why cars look more alike than they used to. You think about those Buicks, Chevys, Fords, whatever, back in the 60s, to put a brief or a, a luggage in the trunk, you had to lift it about five feet in the air to throw it over the <laughs> over the lift. Let's talk. You're you are an absolute car guy. Let's talk about the collectibles. For better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the collectibles that you have. What do you uh, have? I have uh Garage is full of we have 16 minutes left in the program, so <laughs> well, I have eight cars. We can spend two minutes on each. <laughs> They're all Italian. Um, there, I have uh, five Alfa Romeos, two Lanchas, and one Ferrari. Mm. So, uh, and each one has a meaning to me. The one I've had the longest is my 1984 Alfa GTV6. I bought that when I lived in Boston during my accounting days, and I still have it. It's a dedicated track car. And so a six point cage in it, gutted interior. And it's, it's pretty hardcore, but I still drive it on the street. Um, 82 Alpha Spider Type 2, backdated with the old bumpers and the covered headlamps. Uh, I have an, a 75 Alfa Romeo Alfetta sedan, which is an unusual car, transaxle, inboard disc brakes, very cool car. I have a 1960 Alpha Julietta Spider that I restored mm. from the ground up in my garage in Royal Oak. Um, I have a 71 Alfa Romeo Junior Zagato 1300, which is kind of a rare bird. Uh, 1962 Lancia Flaminia GT3C, aluminum bodied, uh, designed by Crazia Touring. Um, very innovative car wheels for first production V6 engine. Uh, 1990 Lancia Delta Integrale 16V that I imported from England. It's a car I always wanted when it first came out, but I had to wait 25 years to get one because you couldn't import them because until you had an EPA exemption. And last but not least, I have a the ex Peter Sellers 1962 Ferrari 250 GTE, oh, which wow. we could spend minutes talking about that one. There's an interesting story behind that one. If Go you ahead. Like. So, uh, my father collected Italian cars, um, and that's where I get the passion from. And uh, back in the early 70s, the only place to find a car like that would have been Auto Week, um, uh, Road Track, New York Times, Cleveland Plain Dealer, things like that. But he also subscribed to um, uh, 
uh, what is it, uh, Auto Car, the old British publication, and sure. he found Out of the UK. Yeah, and so he bought this Peter Sellers car in 1973 for 3,800 dollars. It was right-hand drive. Wow. And had it shipped over to the U.S., but he only kept it for two years. He sold it in 1975 for 4,800 bucks, so he made a thousand dollars. So fast forward 40 years, and my dad, before he had died, he found in his library, he still had the original owner's manual with that car, for that car with Peter Sellers' signature on the owner's, on the uh, registry and so forth. Mm. So he says, see if you can find the owner of that car, and, and we want to give this to him. So I started looking. It took me three years, and out of nowhere on the Ferrari chat forum, this guy pops up. He says, I bought the car from your dad. I still own it. I remember meeting you when you were a little boy. And I'm thinking of selling the car. And so oh, Bob, I, I went down to Joplin, Missouri and uh, looked at the car and uh, stroked a fair, fair, fairly large check. About $4,300, something like that. Yeah, he lost 500 <laughs> bucks on me. But what's great about it is I brought the car up here and I got to take my dad for a ride when he was 91 or 92. And the, the, the man who owned it all those years, every summer comes up to visit me and he and I take the car for a drive, go to cars and coffee. So car was in one of Peter Sellers movies too. We found out later. So it's kind of one, which one, uh, the, the wrong arm of the law from 1963, but he owned the car when he filmed Dr. Strange love and pink Panther too, which is kind of a neat, neat fact. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. So as an Italian loving car guy, uh, I have to ask you, I mean, what do you think of a Ferrari SUV? The Pura song, um, I, I actually don't mind it. It's a little bit, um, surface is a little bit loopy. A little, a little wavy, yeah. A little wavy, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to tighten it up a little bit. I'd like to take about 20 PSI out of it. Uh, I don't mind that Ferrari's doing that. I think that just doing um, hypercars or near hypercars is uh, – it's starting to get dull, uh, you know, SF90, 488 Pista. They're all incredibly fast. I'm not a fan of Ferrari's design language these days, in particular the interiors. I think they're very piecemeal and very busy. Um, and that's why when I look at the Purosang, it's almost refreshing to see a more normal car. Uh, the Roma almost did it, but I had the front's a little too strange for me. I can't get past it. I drove one. It's a nice car, but for that money, there are a lot of cars I'd rather have. Well, and what goes across the auction block and uh, car week in Monterey is pretty interesting too, from the Ferrari perspective. Um, yeah. Well, the new stuff is going for crazy money. It is. It is. I mean, what do you think of, if I think of classic things, you know, uh, classic, classic to me, maybe, I don't know, yeah. but, you know, the Enzo, Michael Schumacher's Enzo, you yeah. know? Yeah, and I get it. The Enzo, you know, naturally aspirated V12, incredibly fast Schumacher's car. I didn't like how that car looked either. Mm. Uh, you know, it, my love of Ferrari ends about at the F40, okay. maybe the 355. Um, I, I like the 355. I used to have a 328 GTS, but that's old school at this point. Yeah, but of the modern era, the late Enzo period, um, 288 GTO would be the car for me. So Are you if you also, know anyone who's trying to sell one for maybe 4800 bucks, have them give me a call. <laughs> Are you also a fan of Italian fashion and clothing and Panerai watches and things like that, or does it stop at cars? It stops at cars. I mean, I 
you know, most designers, you have, you're supposed to say, oh, I love Italian fashion. I get it. I just <laughs> doesn't move. I like watches. You know, I, I have a couple of watches, but uh, I just uh, I'm more of a vintage Italian car fan. All right. Well, I'm going to since you open this up, I'm going to say a product and you're going to tell me your preference from a design execution standpoint okay. and why you chose it. And you don't have to. We did this with Frank Stevenson and we don't you don't have to give me a, a long rambling answer. But uh-huh. uh, shoes. What brand yeah. or well, yeah, what style of shoe? Design, design execution style and or brand. So I'm going to say right now I'm wearing a pair of on clouds. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah and what I like about them yes. is their product design done in a shoe. Everything from the textures and the materials to the graphics signature, I think they're just cool. And and incredibly popular now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, appliances. Appliances. Uh, Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good selection. I like the red knobs. Yeah. I like the red knobs. Phones. Phones, that's a tough I guess one. You, I mean, guess you only got a couple of choices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what's my favorite phone? It's this. It's a, it's a, it's a black rectangle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said watches, watches. Um, I, I, I have a Breitling Navitimer. I think it's just classically beautiful. Uh, I bought my son an Omega Speedmaster. I, I like watches. To me, shouldn't be about forward fashion. They should be about fashion that has lasted tradition sense of permanence you know IWC. that's what i like iwc another iwc example. i love i would love to have a big pilot how about business clothing business nope. clothing nobody smart wears ca- it anymore but no they don't um smart casual it'd be a a, a blazer and uh, a blazer and uh, some quality jeans i like it you host a car gathering at your home tell me I about do. that cars in my yard it's it's uh grown and i have to get you an invite for next year this love year was this year was over the top. So it started off. So back, um, geez, in the 1990s through the late to mid 2000s, my father used to host one down in Ohio, in Youngstown, Ohio. And um, it was a charity um, event. And he would invite the Buckeye Alpha Club and the Buckeye Ferrari Club. And it was always, you know, we cater it and so forth. But then he stopped doing it. And when I moved to um, my current property, where I have two acres, so I have a big yard. The Alpha National Convention came to town in 2014, and they were it was about a mile from my house where everyone was staying. So my wife says, why don't you do what your dad did and have a car party for some buddies? So the first year, we had about 40 cars, and people said, you have to do this every year, and it's doubled in size every year. And um, a couple of years, Haggerty sponsored it. Uh, we took a COVID break for three years, of course. Uh, but we do it to raise money for Angel's Place, which uh, provides um, shelter and housing for uh, mentally challenged adults. And um, this year was big. We had 130 cars and 350 people. And it's great. It's always in July. And I hand pick every car on the field. And it's not the most expensive or most exotic cars. It's just things you don't see. You'll see everything from Frank Marcus's K-Car Wagon to... Uh, geez, you know, Ralph Shield brought his hallucination carbon fiber 68 charger. It's the most interesting show in Detroit. Wayne Carini showed up unannounced one time and walked around and said, I've never seen a show like this. But I, I choose the people in the cars. I choose people that I think are going to be interesting to talk to and are passionate about whatever car they bring. I don't care if it's a $5,000 car. If it's unique, it's on the lawn. 
So it's fun. It's almost like a, your version of the Concours de Le Mans to some extent. Yeah, but it's, there's, a, there's a couple of junky cars out there, but there's a lot of good stuff too. I mean, there's yeah. some high dollar cars too, but that's not the, the point. The point is to see things that are unusual yep. and have a good time. What do, you think of, what do you think of the change going on with car shows? You know, as as um, as as a kid, I certainly looked forward to car shows. Um, you know, the Detroit Auto Show every year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you how much that's changed. Yeah, and and, um, and certainly the splashy reveals, or even the yeah. even the big reveals that that you have done in the past, took yeah. place places like Detroit and New York and L.A. and Chicago. Yeah, or Car Week. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think? of of that landscape and the culture that it created i mean i always used to look forward to the auto shows um if we were revealing something because that was your day in the sun the fanfare but the shows were really for when you're working for a car company kind of a drag you know, you're down there every day and uh, doing interviews and i think uh from a brand perspective i think we get more bang for the buck for with these curated events um private reveals. Uh, I mean, I, I miss the old days of walking around, seeing everything in one place. Um, I don't know if that will ever come back. Uh, you know, we did a lot in, in China too, but those keep getting canceled because of COVID protocols. Uh, yeah. So I, I miss it in some ways and other ways, like for instance, in January now, I don't have to worry about Christmas holiday. Oh boy. When I get back to work, I've got, <laughs> two weeks of driving down there every day and, and parking and getting up in front of cameras and things like that. So that's a bit of a selfish thing. I, I think it's probably, uh, it's a loss to the general public though. I think people look forward to seeing all the concept cars down there and all the new reveals, but it's, it seemed to have moved to a different place now. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of final things, Bob. You what, what do you collect? What do I collect? Other than cars? Yeah. What do I collect? Memories, maybe? <laughs> no, I mean, I. what do I collect? You're talking about physical objects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, than, art, artwork? Um, I, no, not, I mean, I, no, I don't have any, I'm looking around, I don't have any priceless artwork around here. You can see I do have um, a series of, of uh, framed automotive prints. That's um, Sterling Moss, the 54 Grand Prix, uh, British Grand Prix at Silverstone. I've got a bunch of other ones here. I've got this this golf sign behind me. That's from a, uh, an illuminated sign from a gas station down in Texas. Um, I have I have a, some some wine, um, a couple oh, of bottles of yeah. Chateau de Chem, but uh, it's not. Uh, you know, it's my cars, my thing. Car books. I have a lot of car books. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, um, I mean, your last name is Stein. You don't know. Do you ever heard of Ralph? Knew who Ralph Stein was? I do not know Ralph Stein. So here I have this book right here. And it's this is The Treasury of the Automobile by Ralph Stein. It's a great book. And the reason this book is important to me is in the my father gave this book to me. And here I'll read you the uh, inscription. June 1973. To my son, Robert, age seven, the fine cars he always so admired, dad. So after my dad passed, I found this in the library, and it's by Ralph Stein. Great book, and uh, it was the first automotive thing my father ever gave me, and so I'll keep this forever. Sounds like you had a, it sounds like you found a lot of things in that library. <laughs> I did, I did, and um, 
My wife's not happy because I'm looking across the basement. There's these decks of books. She's like, can you get rid of those books? Nope. Not in your life. <laughs> Where do you get inspiration, Bob? Um, you know, certain people have been inspiration to me, certain things in nature. Um, people, you know, as personally, you know, my family inspires me and my wife and my kids. My father was a huge inspiration to me. I can tell because yeah, he not just because of cars, but um, he had a great philosophy on life and uh, very balanced perspective. Professionally, um, there've been a lot of people who've inspired me. You know, Bob Lutz was a big one. Tom Gale at Chrysler, huge influences on me. But day to day, things that inspire me, things that are things that are new and that are clever. Uh, you know, we talk about the on-cloud shoes. You know, it's something like a shoe. I just pick it up. I just, I just like it. Um, I get inspired by by things like that. Yeah, wonderful. Well, he called you Robert. I'll say, Robert, thank you so much for you being on Cars and Culture, sharing your story. I would love to attend your Cars in the Yard next yep. July. We'll do a show from there, maybe. You bet. July. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I'll give an invite out to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thanks for inspiring me and inspiring our audience and sharing your very colorful story through the years. And um, good luck in finding that Ferrari that you're looking for. Thanks. <laughs> may, thanks. may the Sirius XM platform be your megaphone. <laughs> thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to my guest today, Bob Boniface, Buick's Global Head of Design. And to watch my interview with Bob, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 90 episodes. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit, and we'll see you down the road.